brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole and this week we're raising a glass or two as we take a look at the latest trends in the multi-billion dollar drinks industry. We'll consider the cost of the coronavirus pandemic and how it's changed our drinking habits. We'll be finding out why business is booming for the distillers of gin and why we should be looking east for the next big thing in the world of wine. Well, joining me now to uh, have a look at those trends in more detail is the drinks editor from Global Data, uh, Ollie Waring. Um, Ollie, just basically sum up the impact that COVID-19 has had across the drinks industry. It's um, going to be a bit of a cliche to say it's had a seismic effect. It really has had a massive, uh, massive hit um, for the uh, drinks industry, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, consumption location. Obviously, with uh, the lockdowns globally affecting the, uh, the on-premise channel and no one being able to go out to the pubs and bars or restaurants that they would like to frequent, uh, consumption has obviously moved, at, moved into the home. And do you expect, uh, I, I, I suppose I could call it a, a bounce back, but what I mean is, will people start going out to drink? They will, but not um, at the speed that the industry would, um, would prefer, I fear. There's going to be a lot of uh, tentative um, uh, feelings amongst consumers who will be understandably uncomfortable about venturing out of the home uh, under the circumstances of, you know, a second, third, fourth wave of COVID. So the trend of drinking at home, um, which has always been there, but now it's been sort of solidified. And now there is diversification amongst consumers of what they're drinking within the home. You talk about diversification uh, of drinking. W w tell us more about that. It's less a diversification amongst what brands or what categories consumers are drinking. It's more about the price points that they're drinking in. When the lockdowns came into effect towards the tail end of March, what we saw was a lot of stockpiling and consumers reverting to tried and tested brands rather than experimenting as they had been um, keen to do sort of pre-COVID. So what you've had happen there is the well-known established brands have seen their volumes increase and subsequently their sales, whereas the, the higher end, certainly the more expensive, more experimental offerings out there, and this applies across beer, spirits, wine and soft drinks, that has kind of shrunk um, quite rapidly. There will, however, be a sizable bounce back as consumers look to indulge once again after, you know, the better part of four months of being stuck in the home and worrying about whether they get paid or whether they're ever going to leave the home again. You say a sizable bounce back. Is that certain? Yes, I think it is. What we've seen in China, which obviously is ahead of the rest of the, um, the, rest of the world, is you've seen um, luxury um, luxury companies such as Moet Hennessy, which is owned by LVMH, that's Louis Vuitton, they only operate in luxury. They saw a sizable spike in their sales once lockdown lifted. Effectively, what you had there was consumers wanting to celebrate. Now, is that sustainable? I don't think it is. What we'll see is just a return to the equilibrium pre-COVID a little bit further down the line. 
Um, will it also offset the loss of sales during the lockdown? Again, I don't think it will, but it'll be it'll make for a healthy summer. What kind of trends uh, have been appearing across Europe in terms of drinking? It, it's a very generational trend um, that has been going on since time immemorial. What you have is, as a younger generation of legal drinking age consumers come through, they're not interested in drinking what their parents drank. So the best example is American whiskey or bourbon. In the US, for example, you had the, our parents' generation who would, you know, the fathers would, you know, have a beer and a bourbon. And now what you've got is consumers coming through and they're less interested in doing that. And that's just generational. Now, what we've actually got with bourbon is the current generation of you know, 18, 21 to 30, they're really interested in bourbon again because it's skipped. So you have that generational trend that's always been there in drinks. And it's cyclical. You can kind of see it coming. Gin is in now. Will gin be in in a generation's time? Probably not. Will it be back in the generation after? Probably. So at the moment, the fashionable drinks, what, in, in Britain and perhaps in Europe, are gin, are vodka, uh, craft beers especially, almost everywhere seems to be producing their own craft beer. Uh, yes, uh, gin, definitely. Um, that's, that taps into the sort of experimental um, trend, wanting to try something new and also avoiding what your parents drank. Uh, craft beer, similarly is looking not to drink those mainstream lagers um, or ales that uh, the parents drank. Now, the problem with both gin and craft beer is that, they, that many of them rely on provenance. They make a big deal about where they come from. Now, that works within the region where they come from. However, try to break that out beyond the region and try to go national, that's going to be quite difficult. So if, if there's a reliance within the brand and the brand proposition of making something about that provenance, that kind of handicaps you a little bit. OK, we've talked about alcohol. What about non-alcohol drinks? Uh, have people seen any healthier trends uh, during lockdown? The, the health and wellness trend was well on its way um, prior to um, the coronavirus. It's, it's picked up. Um, very much over the last four months during COVID, for sure. Now, it's difficult to say whether that will have accelerated the trend um, of health and wellness, because like I said earlier, we're going to have um, a spike of celebration and indulgence and to hell with health and wellness for a bit there. So it's going to be an interesting few months for that trend. And what are you drinking, Ollie? As a drinks journalist, I try to um, I try to temper it. I'm a I'm a big craft beer fan. Um, I like my gin, but I don't think you can beat Scotch whisky. <laughs> okay, last word to Scotch whisky. Ollie Waring of Global Data, thanks very much for joining us on the agenda. A drink once considered rather old-fashioned has become a go-to tipple across the generations, and that's gin. One couple have opened their own distillery to serve it to their locals in the south of France. QVT is made with local ingredients for an aroma which captures the essence of Provence. And its makers, Justin and Anna Mattison, join me now. Uh, Justin and Anna, what took you to the south of France to make gin and vodka? 
Well, um, it was a, a long round journey that involved sort of 15 to 18 years in Africa and two young children and uh, the, the decision to come back and, and educate our children in Europe. And, and Anna's Swedish, I'm, I'm British, so we shouldn't, so we decided to position ourselves somewhere neutral. And we both enjoyed being in Provence when we were younger. And so it was a sort of a natural place to, to, to head to. And it's, it's a fantastic part of the world. It certainly is. Um, but I know Provence for its world famous rosés, not for uh, gin and vodka. Well, I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, one, of the, one of the things we noticed when we were exploring down here was there was some fantastic local wine, but almost no locally made gin or vodka. And, and slowly but surely, the idea of QVT, which means Quatre Vintois, which is 83, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's the department of Provence where we live. So we saw that there were no locally made gins or vodkas, and, and, and that's where the idea of QVT came from. Is there a history of distilling in your part of the world, in Provence, I mean, gin and vodka? Because the French aren't really renowned, Anna, are they, sort of for, for making uh, gins? No, 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 that is very true. And I think we, we are, uh, we're spearheading it uh, down here in terms of gin. But there is a, uh, there is, of course, the eau de vie and the, uh, the pastis and the, well, to a certain extent, absinthe as well, uh, as part of the local tradition. So there is a bit of a distilling tradition, but not at all uh, in, in, this, in this way. Um, and, and so we found that there was a uh, I think we, people have found it to be quite interesting, uh, but when we set it up, I don't think even customs knew how, uh, how, to, how to handle us, <laughs> because, because we didn't quite fit into their model. The, the, the French do have, a, obviously, they love an aperitif. Is, is that how they would drink it? When we were starting to craft uh, the, 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 um, the ingredients for it, we wanted to try, and a lot of gin makers are trying to do this, is to try and make gin um, a more simple drink to drink, um, rather than always using tonics or other ingredients. And we like to think that we, we've got part of the way there. Certainly, some of our French friends down here have tried it just over ice and really enjoyed it, which is a, a hugely satisfying result for us. And are you aiming at a local market or eventually aiming at a bigger, broader market? Uh, both. Uh, we we are certainly we certainly want to to make sure that we can can spread it locally, and we want to have our local roots, and and we try to source all our ingredients uh, locally, and we want to make sure that it is properly Provençal. Um, but we are also uh, looking, hoping that people across the, the globe, in particular people who have enjoyed Provence, uh, that when they can't come here, uh, we could send a little bit of Provence into their glasses where, wherever they are. Uh, we are uh, already uh, partly in the UK, uh, partly in Sweden due to our roots, uh, but we are hoping to, to expand further. What are the economics of setting up uh, a distillery? I mean, I can see a magnificent still behind you. But uh, uh, do you get your money back? Well, that, that is a, a, <laughs> a great question. Um, I'm, I'm not really ready to answer that yet. We set up the distillery because we wanted to embed ourselves in the community. Um, and rather than, uh, you know, just come and live here and do consultancies, um, whether we get the investment back will depend on how successful we can be. Um, but it wasn't really set up you know, to have a fast return. It was set up to create something um, 
hopefully with some longevity down here. You know, when you consider the Scottish distilleries, um, they're part of the landscape. And I, I, I hope that QVT in time will become part of the landscape in Provence where we are. The world of wine has long been divided into the old world, France, Italy, Spain, and the new world, the likes of Australia, New Zealand, the United States and Chile. But it looks as though another country will soon be added to that list, China. Here with me now is wine expert and author of the book, The Chinese Wine Renaissance, Janet Z. Wang. Uh, Janet, what's exciting about Chinese wine now? Hello, Stephen. Hi, so Chinese wines, I would like to suggest, is a new old world wine region in the sense that it's new because it's just coming onto the radar of consumers. But it's also old because uh, China has had um, a very ancient history of making wine from grape for thousands of years. China is really having a renaissance of this new love for grape-based wines. And also Chinese wines, because of the vast terrain of China, um, it will soon be offering very um, interesting lands and characters for the wine world to taste. Given that China is one of the largest wine producers, how is it that we know so little, in Europe anyway, uh, about Chinese wine? Is that down purely to a lack of marketing? Well, there are several reasons. So China is a top 10 uh, producer, as you very rightly uh, noticed, that it's a very large producer. But a lot of the wines are right now uh, are consumed domestically and uh, very little is exported at the moment. But that is changing. Some wineries, uh, especially the fine wine sector, um, are definitely um, looking to, to expand and looking to become the new China name card of China, you know, in the future. Because there has so, been there has been quite a large investment, a Chinese investment in Bordeaux, for example. Yes, exactly. So, well, there are about 150 or 160 uh, chateaus um, owned by Chinese uh, Chinese owners at the moment. But really, that is still just three percent of the entire Bordeaux region, for example. And recently. Um, Chinese buyers have uh, gone to Barossa in South Australia. Over there, they own about 10% of the wineries there. So certainly there are interests in um, Chinese ownership in foreign vineyards um, because some of them find great opportunity to, um, to sell the wines back in China. Uh, so that is certainly one aspect. Um, you're seeing more uh, Chinese owners in, in established old world and also new world regions now. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Agenda. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. 
There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.